Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John uh, 15 uh, this morning. And while you're turning, I just want to let you know that Chuck Smith's uh, memorial service is going to be this Saturday, uh, November the 18th at 11 uh, o'clock in the morning. And uh, it'll be at Trinity Church in Redlands. Uh, So that's this Saturday at Trinity Church at 11 o'clock, Chuck Smith's memorial service. And if any of you are, we've already got some volunteers, but we need some more. If any of you are able to prepare a salad or a fruit dish for uh, the reception that will be following the service at Trinity, uh, please go by the welcome table and the alcove after the service and sign up to help us out uh, with that. And we'd sure appreciate that. Well, John chapter 15, for those of you that are visiting with us, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and we come this morning to John 15, verse 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 today, and the title of the message is More, More from the Vine to His Branches. In our passage, as it were, we have Jesus, the true vine, talking to His branches, And we're going to learn much that I think will be a great blessing and a help uh, to us. I don't normally begin my sermons with a conclusion, but that's how I'd like to begin uh, my sermon uh, this morning. At the conclusion of Dane Ortland's book entitled Deeper, that many of you read over the course of this past summer, Dane Ortland says, and I quote, the final conclusion... The deepest secret to growing in Christ is this. Look to him. Set your gaze on him. Abide in him hour by hour. Draw strength from his love. He is a person, not a concept. Become personally acquainted with him ever more deeply as the years roll by, unquote. Beautiful words there. And we're going to be learning a bit about how we can actually go about following that beautiful counsel in our passage uh, today. Now, last week, we looked at the first four verses of John uh, 15, in which Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And he says the following, let me just read these Verses beginning in verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. We looked at these uh, words last Sunday, and as we talked about last Sunday, the fruit that Jesus is talking about in this passage that we would bear if we abide in him would be things like the fruit of our lips giving praise to God, or the fruit of the Spirit, 
that Paul talks about in Galatians 5, or the fruit of good works that we do for others, or the fruit of souls that we are able to win to Christ, or the fruit of ministry that we engage in for our fellow Christians as we love them the way that Christ has loved us. And so I would ask you again, how many of you would like to see in your life this kind of fruit being manifested in your life? Just raise your hand. Okay. Our passage today is going to help you. In verses 5 through 11, thankfully, Jesus makes a second pass through the themes that he covered in verses 1 through 4, only this time he's going to restate the same themes in a way that actually gives us practical insight about this idea of abiding in him and the fruit bearing that can result from doing that. Last week, we looked at five declarations that Jesus made in verses one through four. This morning, uh, in verses five through 11, we're gonna find five more declarations that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples and us for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness for him. A life of intimacy with Jesus and fruitfulness for him. And so that's how we're going to break down our study of the text this morning. We're going to observe five declarations that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples and us for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness with and for Jesus. And declaration number one is this, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Look at verse five, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Notice, by the way, the progression of fruit bearing that we've seen thus far, just in John 15. In verse two, we saw bears fruit. And then we saw bears more fruit. And now here in verse five, Jesus says that the person who abides in him bears what? Much fruit. So we've gone from fruit to more fruit to much fruit in just the space of five verses. Here's how our relationship works, Jesus says. I am the vine and you are the branches And he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. This verse is a promise from Jesus that you and I, I think, can take to the bank. And it explains why he wants us to abide in him. If we would only abide in him and allow him to abide in us, he will see to it that we bear much fruit in our lives. And what he promises here reveals, I think, the desire of Jesus and the desire of God the Father for the normal Christian life to be a life of bearing much fruit. Evidently, bearing much fruit is not just God's plan 
for the super Christians among us. It's his plan for every Christian who abides in him and allows him to abide in them. And in the mind of the Father, it's not enough for you and I to simply be a part of the vine and look pretty and produce great foliage or leaves. He wants us to bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. And God has every right to expect this of us, given who it is that we're attached to, right? After all, we're attached to his infinitely glorious and powerful and life-giving son, Jesus Christ. So anything less than much fruit from someone attached to him should be shocking, right? To highlight our need to abide in him and to allow him to abide in us, Jesus interestingly goes to the opposite extreme and tells us what we cannot do if we do not abide in him. He says at the end of verse 5, for apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. There's actually a double negative in the Greek text here. You could translate this for apart from me, you can do nothing whatsoever. Jesus doesn't say here, apart from me, uh, you can do a little. Apart from me, you can do a few things, but not much. No, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing whatsoever. And I would ask you this morning, do you agree with Jesus? Do you really believe what Jesus says here? And I would caution you not to answer that question too quickly. I actually wonder if any of us truly believes the truth of this statement at the end of verse 5 as fully as we should, because we often try, I think, to do many things apart from a conscious dependence upon Jesus. Or maybe I should just speak for myself here. There are some things that I do in my life, for example, that I do in my life as a pastor that I know that I can't do apart from Christ, and I don't even bother trying. For example, there have been a few times over the years that I've gone into a meeting uh, with someone who was showing signs of demon possession, Uh, and you can bet I went into those meetings prayed up and utterly desperately reliant upon Jesus. Also, I am keenly aware of the fact that I cannot stand up here and preach the word of God to you apart from Christ enabling. So I cry out to God every Sunday morning and express my dependence and reliance upon him in desperation, asking him to give me the strength to bring his holy word to you. But though I do that, for example, on a Sunday morning, it's easy for me to wake up on Monday morning, which is my day off, and just ease into my day casually without feeling that same sense of desperate dependence on Christ that I was feeling the day before. And so not feeling so desperate, I saunter into my Monday 
and try to love my wife and my own strength. I may even try to drive on the freeway apart from dependence upon Christ or maybe surf the internet apart from him or make a run to Home Depot apart from him. And it's in exactly such moments that something can so easily happen that catches me off guard. And before I know it, I'm in over my head and I am reeling spiritually and feeling a million miles away from where I was 24 hours prior. Can any of you identify? Now, you might think I ought to be able to at least make a run to Home Depot apart from Christ. But I remember actually doing that a couple years ago and someone I pull in the parking lot and someone did something to me in the parking lot that left me in my vehicle shaking with rage that was so intense that I cursed this person in my heart and felt as if I could have killed somebody. I was so stunned by this flash of rage that surfaced in my heart and the thoughts, the dark thoughts that I was thinking that I didn't even make it into the store. I just made a U-turn and drove home and confessed to my wife the rage and the anger that I had felt. So yeah, I can't even go to Home Depot apart from dependence upon Jesus Christ. What Christ, I think, would want from me and from all of us is for us to realize that apart from him, we cannot do a single thing the way we ought to do it. So we should face every day and every moment and every opportunity with an equal sense of desperate dependence upon him and cherishing our attachment to him as the true vine with us being but the branches. We should realize that we can't pray as we should apart from him. We cannot obey God as we should apart from Christ. We can't be the spouse that God has called us to be apart from Christ. We can't be the parents or the siblings that God has called us to be apart from him. We can't resist temptation apart from Jesus. And we can't bear fruit apart from him. We can't do a single thing as we ought to do it apart from him. That's what he's teaching us here. And think about why Jesus would feel the need to put this out there and make this statement at the end of verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. Why would he say that to them? Is he saying these words to his disciples to put them down and to lift himself up at their expense? No, not at all. Jesus makes this statement in order to help his disciples to see that they were engineered for relationship with him. He's saying to them, I am the vine. And you are the branches and being branches, you were engineered by God to function only in deep attachment to me. Disconnected from me, you cannot do anything 
just like a branch cannot do anything detached from the trunk of the vine because God did not design you to operate as a believer detached from me. Just like a woman cannot conceive a child apart from a man and just like a man cannot bring about a child apart from a woman. So we cannot bear fruit apart from Jesus because we were wired by God for relationship with Jesus. Just like the branch of a vine is designed for relationship with the trunk of the vine. Keep in mind also that in telling his disciples that apart from him, they can do nothing. Jesus is actually in this moment talking about them in the same way that he has spoken about himself on prior occasions. Let me give you two references in John chapter five and verse 30. Jesus literally says, I can do nothing. This is Jesus talking, the son of God. I can do nothing of myself. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then John five nineteen, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. And now here in verse five of John 15, Jesus is telling his disciples that what was true for him in relation to his father will now be true for them in relation to himself. Apart from him, they can do nothing But in relationship with him, they will be able to bear much fruit. Talk about going from zero to a hundred like that. That's what's happening here. Without me, nothing. With me, much fruit, Jesus says. So long as you abide in me and allow me to abide in you. Well, sadly, not everyone who claims the name of Christ is going to abide in Jesus in this way. And so a question is, what will come of them? And this brings us to the second declaration that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy with him and fruitfulness for him. Number two, let's word it this way. Uh, The one who does not abide in me becomes gathered and thrown with others into the fire. The one who does not abide in me becomes gathered and thrown with others into the fire. Observe what Jesus says in verse six. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire And they, the branches, are burned. Now, from all that we have learned from what Jesus has said up to this verse, we can actually piece together the following sequence. If someone does not abide in Jesus, we've already learned that such a person will not bear fruit. And we already learned in verse two that the non-fruit bearing person will be 
taken away from the vine. But what will come of such a person after they're taken away from the vine? Jesus actually addresses that in this verse, verse 6. First of all, saying that such a person is, after being taken away, thrown away as a branch, or literally cast off, cast aside, and then just lying there on the ground, detached from any kind of connection to the vine, such a one dries up over time. And once they are completely dried up, Jesus says that such a branch is gathered together with other dried up branches. And I want us to think about this idea of this gathering of dried up branches that Jesus speaks about here. I think Jesus mentioning this gathering is of some significance. The word that is translated gathered here is the Greek word we get our English word synagogue from. So with that thought in mind, Jesus is saying that these dried up branches will be synagogued together, congregated together with other such branches, meaning that at least for a time, such dried up persons will comprise a synagogue of non-abiders in Jesus, a congregation of the spiritually dead. Such apostates have a way of finding each other and becoming congregated together on their way to destruction. And we see this, do we not? happening all the time among those who have apostatized from the faith. They abandon Christ and inevitably they end up congregating with other apostates who agree with them and they'll even form alliances with one another. As the commentator Linsky says, and I quote, who can count the associations and organizations that are marked by unbelief, worldliness, Christless worship, worldly pleasures, and all manner of deception. They seem to be gathered into bundles even now in advance for the burning. Unquote. In the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks of wicked people who make up the synagogue of Satan. And that's what these dried up branches become as they are synagogued together before being thrown into the fire and burned. Now, did such persons lose a salvation that they formerly had? Uh, my answer would be no, that's not what's happening. As I mentioned last Sunday, Jesus teaches in John Chapter 10, that his sheep are in his hand and in the hand of his father. And he promises that no one can ever pluck them from their hand, the hand of the father and the son, which means that all those who are truly saved will continue abiding in Jesus and clinging to him as their source of life and salvation. And those who do not abide in Christ in this way will demonstrate by their failure to abide that they were never truly saved in the first place. Does that make sense? 
Let me give you two references. Second uh, John 1, 9, the apostle John says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In 1 John 2, 19, John, the apostle, speaks of apostates and says, and I'm going to translate this in a way that coincides with Jesus' language here in John 15. John says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have abided with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Such persons may look like Christians for a time as they experience the common grace benefits of being close to Christ and to his people, but they will eventually show their true nature by their failure to abide in Christ, depending upon him for life and salvation. And God will root them out from among his people and expose them for what they were all along. And he will gather them with others just like them and eventually throw them into the fires of hell. And the reason, guys, that Jesus is talking about this right now here in verse 6 is because this is exactly what is happening to Judas even while Jesus is speaking. Jesus, we saw in chapter 13, has outed Judas as his betrayer. He has told Judas to go and do quickly what he has his heart set on doing. He has allowed Satan to enter into Judas and he's allowed Judas to walk out of the room, off into the night to betray him. And completely now outside of the presence of Jesus and the fellowship of the disciples, Judas's soul dries up more quickly than he would have imagined. Even the common grace benefits of hanging out with Jesus and his disciples quickly wear off, leaving the soul of Judas completely dried up. And what does Judas do in that state? Interestingly, he makes a beeline toward other people, toward the enemies of Christ, and forms a synagogue of Satan together with them, and they will travel together as a congregation to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. After betraying Judas, Judas will be filled with, or after betraying Jesus, Judas will be filled with remorse, and he will in his sadness and remorse, run to his fellow congregants in wickedness. And he will say to them in Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned by betraying the innocent blood. What a heart-wrenching confession to hear from the lips of Judas as he confesses this to his fellow congregants in wickedness. And what concern will they show 
What concern will his fellow congregants in wickedness show to him in his remorse? Absolutely none. They will say to him, what is that to us? See to that yourself. What congregants they are. And Judas will give heed to their counsel and do exactly that. No longer being with Jesus to experience any measure of grace and truth, Judas will go out and hang himself and he will find himself in that moment ushered from the torments of conscience in this life to the fires of eternal hell in the life to come. When you consider the backdrop of what is actually at work right now as Jesus is speaking, considering what is happening with Judas, you see that these words from Jesus are most pressing and are a very sobering declaration designed to help his disciples to have a way of interpreting what is right now happening to Judas and what will be happening to many Judases in the years to come. True believers will heed Jesus' warning here in verse 6, and they will stick with Jesus and abide in him, depending upon him for life and for salvation, and they will avoid the fate of Judas. The disciples are so blessed to hear these words from Jesus in verse 6, but they need more, obviously, than just warning in this moment. They need encouragement and a forward-looking vision of what their life of abiding in Christ can look like. And this brings us to the third declaration that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. Number three, the third declaration is basically this. If you abide in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you abide in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Look what Jesus says in verse seven. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Notice, by the way, how what Jesus says here gives us some practical insight into what it means to allow him to abide in us. You might be hearing what Jesus said prior going, what does that look like practically? But listen to what he says here. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. In you. That's very helpful language from Jesus. So if you're looking for a practical way to allow Jesus to abide in you, then here's one way to do that. Open your Bible and read his words and then let his words abide or remain in you. Let him speak to you through his words that are found in scripture and then believe those words and even memorize those words and meditate upon those words and take those words with you throughout the day. As the commentator Leon Morris says, when believers abide in Christ and Christ's words abide in them, they live as close to Christ as one can possibly live. 
Now look at the challenge and the promise Jesus gives in verse 7 to those who abide in him and allow his words to abide in them. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, look at what he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is Jesus talking. This is the Lord of the universe talking. He knows all things and he says what he means and he means what he says, and he says here, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Notice that Jesus isn't just going up to random people here and saying to them, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done. No, he's speaking to his disciples that he has been training for the last three years. And he's placing even upon them a very meaningful condition on this instruction and on this promise saying to them, essentially, if you abide in me on the road ahead, and if my words are abiding in you on the road ahead, then I am commanding you to ask me whatever you wish, and I'm promising you that it will be done for you. Jesus makes this promise with confidence because he knows that if we abide in him and allow his words to abide in us, then he and his words will begin to shape what we wish for in such a way that what we wish for will be in alignment with what he wishes for. Us abiding in him and his words abiding in us will lift us from the puny confines of our selfish ambition and sweep us up into the grander story of what Christ is doing in the world. And it is then that over time, His desires become our desires, and we will begin to give voice to his desires in prayer because they are now our desires. And it is then that we will find ourselves getting the things that we're asking God for in prayer. Jesus' language here indicates that God wants our prayer requests to flow organically from hearts that are fat with the sap of life from Jesus and coming from souls that are infused with the very words of Christ. Such prayer requests, God answers. In fact, notice what Jesus says in verse 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. When Jesus says, my father is glorified by this, the word this is pointing back to what he has just said and forward to what he is about to say. Jesus is saying, my father is glorified by you praying such Christ-shaped prayers, and he's glorified by him answering your prayers with the result that you would bear much fruit and in the process so prove to be my disciples. 
Jesus' language here teaches us that our prayers to God are part of the fruit that he wants to produce in us. And he's teaching us that God's answers to those prayers are also a part of the fruit that he wants to see in our lives. Jesus' words here also teach us that our fruit bearing in life is intricately tied to our prayer life as we pray prayers that are shaped by Jesus Christ and by his words. Jesus tells us here that such answers to prayer and the fruit bearing that goes along with those answers to prayer glorify the Father, and they are part of our deepening journey into discipleship with Jesus. At its core, our discipleship with Jesus entails abiding in him and allowing his words to abide in us and allowing his words to reshape our hearts in such a way that we begin to want what Jesus once, and then we give voice to those desires through prayer and experiencing God's faithful response to those prayers. That's part of the definition of discipleship with Christ. There's something else that this sort of discipleship with Jesus entails, and this brings us to the fourth declaration that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. Number four, let's word it this way. Keep my commandments as a way of abiding in my love. Keep my commandments as a way of abiding in my love. Observe what Jesus says in verse nine. He says, just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus is reminding us here that in having a relationship with him, we're actually getting caught up in a larger relationship that we are a late arrival to. Before we were even a thing, Jesus says, the father has loved me. In fact, the father has loved Jesus from all of eternity past before the creation of the physical universe. In fact, the creation of the physical universe was simply, we could say, an explosion of that love relationship, which means that at the center of reality is a relationship between the father and the son in a love relationship that is more fundamental than the universe itself. And now Jesus, this is amazing, says to his disciples, just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. He's saying in loving you, I have been loving you out of the fullness of my love relationship with the father. It is then that Jesus says, abide in my love. And in giving this command, Jesus is giving us yet another practical idea of what abiding in him looks like. So if last week, you know, you heard Jesus saying, abide in me, and you're like, what does that mean? How do I do that practically? Here's some help here from Jesus. Abide in my love. 
In other words, know that he loves you. If you're a child of God and you have put your trust in Jesus and you're looking to him as your Lord and Savior, know that he loves you and see how he showed you the greatest love imaginable in laying down his life in order to bring you salvation. Think about all the blessings that he has lavished upon you in saving you, like the forgiveness of all of your sins, being clothed in his perfect righteousness, being adopted as God's child, and being given the Holy Spirit to empower you to say no to sin and to begin to serve God. Think about the privilege that is now yours by virtue of the love that Christ has shown you in saving you, the privilege that is yours of now relating to God as your father and to Jesus as your big brother and as your savior. The blessings of Christ's love in the gospel toward us are endless. He has done more for you and for me than we would have even thought to ask for. So count your blessings. Count your gospel blessings. Learn to name them one by one. Realize in doing so that you will never reach the outer limits of the height and the breadth and the length and the depth of his love. Cherish these gospel blessings and live your life inside the enjoyment of them. That's part of what abiding in Christ's love looks like. And there's something else you can do to abide in his love that Jesus explains in verse 10. And this is something I'll tell you in advance that we don't think about as much as we should. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So, I read this and learn that abiding in Jesus evidently entails looking at every commandment of Jesus and seeing those commandments as an expression of his loving heart toward me. It entails me treasuring his every command as a token of his love for me and then seeking to live by his commandments as a way of abiding in his loving provision for me. As far as Jesus' commandments go, what commandments have the disciples heard from Jesus just since John 13? And get out your pens, and maybe you're thinking, okay, here come the commandments. Well, let me give you the commandments that they have just heard from Jesus, even in this discourse. For starters, he commands them in John 13, 34, love each other the way I have loved you. Also, the command to let not their hearts be troubled in John 14, 1. The command to believe in the Father in John 14, 1. The command to believe in Jesus in John 14, 1. And then his command to abide in me and let me abide in you in John 15, 4. And there is also the command 
that we saw in verse 7 just a few minutes ago, ask whatever you wish for. That's an imperative. That's a command from Jesus. Ask whatever you wish with the confidence that it will be done. So abiding in Christ's love means keeping these sorts of commandments with the goal of thereby abiding in and enjoying his great love. In fact, according to this verse, Jesus wants you to look at how he himself viewed his father's commandments. Jesus wants you to know that he himself, Jesus, drew a circle around the father's commandments to him and he labeled that circle the love of my father and decided this is where I'm going to live. And he viewed obeying the commandments of his father as a way of abiding in his father's love. That's what he's saying in this passage. And I think we all do well to notice how comfortable Jesus is in talking about his relationship with his father in terms of commandments and keeping the father's commandments. Sometimes I think we get a little too clever for our own good and begin to think we've outgrown the need to speak and think in the language of keeping commandments when it comes to our relationship with God. But we observe here that Jesus was the most spiritually mature person ever to live, and he loved to speak of his father's commandments. And he loved to obey the father's commandments as a way of abiding in the father's love. And he loved to talk about that as he is here in this passage. And we ought to read Jesus' language here in this passage and realize that if it was not beyond Jesus to talk about his relationship with the father in this way, then it should not be beyond us to speak this way as well. Also think of Adam and Eve very quickly. God said to Adam and Eve in the garden, what were his commands of every tree of the garden? Eat freely. Feast was his fundamental and first command. But of the tree in the middle of the garden, do not eat. Both of these commandments were an expression of God's loving heart toward Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve should have viewed God's commandments in this way. They should have drawn a circle around those commandments and labeled them the love of God. And they should have kept those commandments as a way of living sumptuously within the confines of his loving provision for them. But we all know they did not do this. They went outside of God's loving provision of his commandments and went their own way, followed their own commandments to their own hurt. But where Adam and Eve failed... Jesus succeeded. And here in verses 9 and 10, Jesus points us to his example and he tells us that this is how he wants us to live. He wants us to see his commandments as expressions of his love for us. And he wants us to treasure and obey those commandments as a way of living within the bountiful 
ever-expanding confines of his love for us, just as he did with his Father's commandments. And we will be much more likely to do this if we know the heart of Jesus for us, which he happily reveals to us in verse 11. And this brings us to the fifth and final declaration that Jesus makes to prepare his disciples for a life of intimacy and fruitfulness in him. Number five, let's word it this way. My goal and all I have said is your ultimate joy. My goal and all I have said is your ultimate joy. Observe what he says in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus' language here points us to the joy that is in his own heart and his desire for his joy to be inside of us. Jesus has experienced unbridled joy in his relationship with the Father and abiding in the Father's love by keeping the Father's commandments. And he wants this joy that is in him to be in us as well as we relate to him in the same way that he related to his father. He literally wants his disciples to feel and enjoy the same radical sweetness of walking in his ways that he has experienced in walking in his father's ways. And then Jesus says to his disciples that he has spoken these things to them. Look at the end of verse 11, that your joy may be full. Jesus doesn't just want us to have life. He wants us to have it abundantly. He doesn't just want our thirst to be quenched. He wants us to be so full of living water from him that out of our innermost being are flowing rivers of living water pouring out onto others. And Jesus here doesn't just want us to have joy, but for our joy to be as full as it possibly can be. Do you believe that this is what Jesus wants for you? Every one of us in this room should ask that question this morning. Do you believe that this is what Jesus wants for you? And I would encourage you not to answer that question too quickly either. I heard someone say years ago that man is incurably suspicious of God. And I think we all can identify with that. Deep down, we have a sneaking suspicion that God maybe doesn't have our highest good at heart. And we fear that he is a cosmic killjoy who is out to take away our happiness and to make us miserable. But Jesus loved us so much that he laid down his own life for us. And he tells us that he wants us to abide in him and his love in order that the joy that is in him would also be in us. And so that our joy would be truly made full. 
And Jesus, we have to believe, knows what he's talking about. He abided in his father's love perfectly, and he experienced great joy in his own heart. And loved by the father in this way, he promises to us, I'm going to love you the same way my father has loved me. And I promise you that if you abide in my love by keeping my commandments, the joy that is in me will also be in you and your joy will be made full. And all that Jesus has said to us thus far in John 15, he is fighting for your joy. He's fighting for our highest and fullest joy, a fuller joy than we would ever come to know or experience by going our own way and living apart from him. So I ask you this morning, will you take Jesus up on his offer and have his joy? Or will you continue in your stubborn and sinful ways of making choices and living apart from him and obedience to him? Maybe some of us in this room are thinking, yeah, I don't, I don't trust him. I don't trust him. What you're really saying is, I don't trust Jesus who died, laid down his life for my salvation. Who do you trust instead? You trust you. And what have you done, my friend, to earn that kind of trust compared to Jesus? He is so much more worthy of your trust than you are of your trust. I would encourage you just as we close, don't settle. And to do anything other than to abide in Jesus and his love is to settle. Don't be a settler. I think C.S. Lewis's words are most appropriate here because I think they describe um, many people He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. And that's what Jesus is offering in this passage to you, a holiday at sea. C.S. Lewis then says, we are far too easily pleased. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask you to do a work in our heart in such a way that we would not be so easily pleased. That we would look at anything apart from you and the joy that it would offer and say, no, if I went with that, I would be settling. That would not truly satisfy And bring the kind of joy that Jesus 
has in his own heart and that he says could be in my heart too if I would just abide in his love in relationship with him. Help all of us in this room, Lord, to settle for nothing less than the highest joy to be found in abiding in you, Lord Jesus, and walking in your ways. And with your joy that is in you, Lord Jesus, being in us, may we bear the kind of fruit that you long to produce in us. And among that fruit, Lord, may it be a desire to serve and to bless others, to glorify your name, and to love others with the very love that you have shown to us. That we might experience the radical sweetness of abiding in you. We've learned much from these verses up through verse 11, and we thank you for that, Lord, and thank you for even more that you will be teaching us in the weeks to come as we press even deeper into this wonderful chapter. We just give thanks to you for your goodness to us, Lord, and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,